Hey everyone, it's really good to be here with you today. Um, yesterday I came in here for the first time in a few months to do some preparation. Um, and just being here, it, it made me so happy um, to think about having everyone back here again. Um, something really good to look forward to. So Mason, over the last few weeks, has been leading us through this series of reading Luke. And I've just been loving hearing him exploring this theme in Luke of the gospel that turns everything upside down. And today, I'm taking us on a slight detour from that as we read the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome. But in a way, it's not so much of a detour as it is a flash forward. See, this letter was written some 20 years after the, Luke, uh, the events that Luke recorded for us. And so we can see how this gospel, which began in a little province at the edge of the Roman Empire, has made it all the way to the center of the world, to Rome. And so we can ask now, did it work? Did the gospel actually turn things upside down in Rome? And there is a big question there behind that one as well. Was the result of all that Jesus said and did to lead us to a merely spiritual salvation, something internal, uh, like where you can get yourself right with God and find inner peace and have assurance that you'll go to heaven when you die? Is that all that being a Christian is about? Or does the gospel mean more than that? Should we expect it? to bring change not only inside our hearts, but also to the world here and now as we live it out. That's what we're asking today. So before I even begin to explore those questions, we need to pray and ask you to please pray with me. Our merciful Father, please guide us and minister to us today by your presence with each one of us. Remind us of your overwhelming goodness. Even though we are physically distant, we pray that you would unite us by your spirit as we join together on this journey of following your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Have you ever found that the times when you fall into the, the deepest and the sweetest sleep are precisely the times when you're not supposed to? Uh, there is a wonderful story I read about the Roman Emperor Nero, who was Caesar at around the time when Paul wrote this letter. Nero was not a military man like many other Caesars. No, he wanted to be a star. His passion was performing on a stage and he craved the applause of the crowd. The trouble was, he wasn't particularly good at it. 
Um, he would hold these singing contests, which were rigged so that he would win, which tells you a lot about what he was like as a ruler and as a singer. Um, but one of Nero's high-ranking officials was this guy called Vespasian. And because Vespasian fell asleep during one too many of Nero's performances, he had to very quickly escape uh, and hide out in a small village in the countryside until after Nero was dead. Falling asleep at the wrong time nearly cost him his life. And in a way, I mean, I can relate to that. Many of my Sunday mornings as a kid in church were spent fighting against my eyelids as they grew heavier and heavier. And not even that hard wooden pew that we sat on could keep me from drifting off. Um, but take heart because I am living proof that God is not petty and vindictive like Nero was. And hey, if, if all of you on your comfy couches at home can make it through the next 20-something minutes, just know that you have earned my admiration. But Paul reminds us that right now is not the time to get cosy. Right now, we need to wake up. As we heard uh, in that wonderfully read reading from the Holmes family, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Church, Paul wants us to wake up, not because God is out to get us, but the opposite. It's because something so good is about to happen. He doesn't want us to miss it. He's telling us that something old is coming to an end. Something new is beginning. And that change involves a transformation. Put it this way. If you knew that the value of the dollar could drop to zero overnight, wouldn't you start thinking very differently about your savings? That's a little bit like what Paul is saying here. If we say that Jesus was raised from the dead, that means there is no going back to the old normal. It means it's time for something new. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he began an entirely new way of being alive. A new social economy that renders the old one worthless. We know all about the old economy, don't we? The old economy is based on who controls the things that are rare in the world, like gold, oil, land. These are things that people kill for and become enemies over. This is a pattern of living which doesn't only lead to death, it requires death. That's fuel for the engine. And the old economy is based on the concept of debt. I mean, how do you construct a social hierarchy? It's simple. You, you just line up everyone in order of 
Who do you know? And who do you owe? Debt ultimately makes one person the slave of another. Now, the slavery in ancient Rome that Paul was addressing was not always slavery determined by racial lines, uh, like we had in the recent history of the British Empire and America. Now, the slavery that Paul is addressing is one often determined by economic lines. So in some ways, it's, it's more similar to the slavery we have today in Australia. And given that about 70% of the Christians in Rome at this time were slaves, they knew the destruction that this old economy brings all too well. But the new economy of Jesus is based not on scarcity and debt, but on the generosity and kindness of a God who dies to rescue his enemies and to free slaves. We join the economy of his kingdom when, by faith in his promises, we extend the same generosity to others that we receive from him. So have a think about it. Which economy would you rather participate in? Because at the end of the day, we are in either one or the other. And before I go on, we need to acknowledge something. Because we talk about a gospel that turns the world upside down. The truth is that at many times in history, this passage in Romans 13 has been used in exactly the opposite way, both by the state and the church. Listen to what Paul writes. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, I ask you, what self-respecting tyrant would not love to hear this from the pulpit? There is irony here because it's one point on which Paul and Caesar are in perfect agreement. Many emperors of past and present have believed 100% that they are chosen by God. And we know how that goes, don't we? We know that many governments of our time have been quick to quote Romans 13 when demanding obedience from their citizens. Of course, they conveniently forget about this part of the Bible when there is a foreign state that they want to overthrow or interfere with. They clearly don't believe that those authorities have been established by God. And Sadly, it's often the countries that boast about their so-called Christian values that have used this passage to justify the most horrific things, like racial slavery and oppression in America, white supremacy and apartheid in South Africa, among many other cases. Sometimes we hear how Australia was founded on Christian values. 
But I wonder, which Jesus did Indigenous Australians meet when their lives, land, history and children were stolen from them? Was that good news for them? I wonder what refugees at Australia's borders today think about these Christian values when they're locked up for years without trial or for the crime of seeking, seeking a safer place to live. Seeing the way that scripture has been weaponized like this is disheartening, isn't it? And none of us can claim total innocence because, like it or not, we have profited from it. And listen, if, if you are one of the few people that hasn't benefited from injustice in this country, I would love to chat with you later and I would just listen to your experiences. But for all of us, we all need to join in with the Spirit in grieving over this and to enter into repentance, asking for God's mercy on us, that he will lead us to restore what has been broken. And we need to ask again, does the gospel actually make any difference? If Jesus really is Lord of heaven and earth, why is he allowing evil to continue? And when this evil appears in the high places of authority, is Paul telling us that we should just quietly submit to it? Well, to get a clue to this question, all we need to do is rewind one verse back from chapter 13. In the very breath before he tells us about authorities, Paul tells us this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What do you think? Does that sound like passive submission to you? No, I don't think so either. And fighting words. Is, are there things that were evil about the way that Caesar ruled? Without a doubt. Christians in Rome experienced that pain every day. Are there systems in Australia right now that are unfair and do harm to people? Absolutely. We would like to think that we've solved the problem of evil in the last 2,000 years, but as Paul reminds us earlier in Romans, we've simply invented new forms of evil, ones that we're more comfortable with. Paul says we cannot afford to get comfortable in the household of Caesar. To follow Jesus is to follow him into revolution against every system of evil. Most revolutions of this world begin with bloodshed and end with one tyrant replacing another. But if we know a God who could have crushed his enemies, died for them instead in order to rescue them. Then we realize that we have just gazed upon the blueprint of an entirely different kind of revolution. One that arrives not through violence, but through an overwhelming and transformational peace. 
you might hear this and ask, yeah, I, I get the peace part, but is Paul really calling the church to revolt against Rome? Well, no, like he forbids outright rebellion. But in another way, yes, and even more than yes, because Paul is announcing to Rome that it has already been conquered. See, the word gospel, that's, that's not a Bible word. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Rome. The emperor might issue a gospel message to announce the good news of a military conquest and to spread the propaganda of the empire and compel people everywhere to place their loyalty with Caesar, who in turn will provide peace and abundance for all his subjects. But Paul's letter poses a problem for Caesar because Gospels are supposed to go out from Rome, not come to it from somewhere else. So what does it mean for the empire when Paul starts his letter talking about a new gospel celebrating the reign of a new law? The gospel of Jesus declares to Rome that a new kingdom has arrived and calls Christians everywhere to abandon the false gospel of empire and instead place their faith and loyalty in Christ by reenacting his self-giving love for the weak and the other. In Roman culture, the weak are expected to serve the strong. So when Paul instructs the strong of the church to honour and serve the weak, that is a powerful act of peaceful defiance. I mean, this, this is explosive stuff. Can you imagine what would happen in the world if we actually took Jesus on his word and in prayer and in faith lived according to the spirit he has given us? Because wherever two or three gather in Jesus' name and live not according to Rome's false promises, but according to Jesus' new way of living, participating in Jesus' new economy, right there in that relationship, we see the gospel flip one small piece of the world upside down. And as we read on in our passage, Paul gives us a list of things that the authorities demand from us. Taxes, revenue, honour, respect. Those are the things that the authorities of the world demand. They're the building blocks of social hierarchy and economy. But what does the new king, Jesus, ask of us? With what are we indebted to him? When we read on in chapter 13, we get this. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. So whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Jesus does not demand payment and then threaten those who withhold. All he asks is that any good thing we have received from him, we consider someone who is less than us, more deserving than us. Here are the building blocks of a new social structure and a new economy.
This is where the first are last and the last are first. And we can almost hear Paul echoing Jesus when he said in Luke chapter 20, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But before you do that, give to God what belongs to God. And poor old Caesar is going to find out there ain't much left over for him. Paul says later on in Romans chapter 15 that when Christians behave like this with a continuing debt to love one another, it brings praise to God. And he says that people outside the church will see it and they will glorify God for his mercy. So if you want to praise God, you can sing a beautiful song in church. You can tell someone what Jesus has done for you. Those are wonderful things to do. But church, we need to make sure that our actions match our words. When we who have received God's mercy act as agents of his mercy, using whatever strength, whatever advantage we have to benefit those without, overcoming evil with good, when we do these things, it brings praise to God out of other people's mouths. Let me give you something uh, that, that just struck me as an amazing example of this. Last year, in 2019, there were nearly 6,000 families in the U.S., in the Chicago area, that opened up their mail to find a yellow envelope. At first, it looked like just another bill to pay. But then they read the words, RIP, medical debt. See, a network of churches had realized that many low-income families in their area were facing crippling debts from medical expenses. In this system, all it takes for many people is one accident, one illness, to land their family in a lifetime of struggle. These medical debts often get handed off to debt collection agencies with less than scrupulous methods, and the entire experience is one of constant shame and anxiety. So these churches felt their people's pain. They got together, they pulled their money, secretly paid off the debts, and then wrote these beautiful letters to strangers to tell them the good news that they were free. Imagine the words of praise to God coming from these people's mouths when they realized the new life that they had just been handed. If we want people to know Jesus, I wonder if maybe we spend less time debating atheists and more time simply acting like Jesus. So as we read Paul's instructions to the church about how we treat authority, we need to remember that he is not asking for our blind support. In fact, he's holding up the authority to the light. Yes, Caesar may look great and powerful, but Paul says, look, even the emperor is a servant. Doesn't mean he's an obedient one. 
it does mean he will be held accountable. And we also see a stark contrast here. What kind of leader do you want to follow? It was unusual for Roman emperors to become Roman emperors without murdering the old one first. And when they got there, they ruled with the threat of violence to anyone who wouldn't obey. The weak are daily sacrificed on the altars of the powerful. Compare that to Jesus, who ruled with patience, kindness, and care for even the ones who seem the most unlovable, unimportant, or expendable. He was not willing to sacrifice a single one of his people even though it meant he would be murdered in the process. Caesar is long dead and gone. But look around, and we still see all of his traits active in the world today. If we look closely, we might even see them in the church, even in ourselves. We see his willingness to sacrifice the weak if it enriches the strong. His promise of abundance, though it encourages greed. His talk of peace, though it requires war to achieve. Even today, we, we have a decision of where to place our allegiance. Will it be Caesar or Christ? Whose promises do you trust more to lead you to life? Whose economy will you invest yourself in? Church, the world is watching us. Whose values will they see when they look at our lives? Because if what we want from Christianity is to ease the pain of a guilty conscience, to feel like we're connecting with God, to get answers to the difficult questions, or to have a spiritual experience. Let me tell you, there are much easier ways to get all of those things than following Jesus. We can get all those things from the comfort of Rome, and they even come in Christian wrapping. In fact, the empires of this world are structured to make those things accessible, convenient, safe, and sterile, lifeless. But there is something about this person, Jesus, that you will not find anywhere else. He has an untamable aliveness, something that makes a difference in the world, that brings new life out of dead places, and restores things long broken. If we are willing to listen to the groaning, groaning of creation, to hear the Holy Spirit's groans, and to join in, we will find a God who welcomes the brokenhearted and the empty-handed, who brings us into Jesus' new way of living that leads to life. And let us live like him, because we know what time it is. The end of the old is nearly here.
but it's not time to bunker down and hoard toilet paper. It is time to wake up, set the table, and invite the hungry to share a meal. Be assured that the new world has already begun to arrive. The world where evil is overcome by communities of radical generosity and kindness. The night is nearly over. The first rays of dawn are lighting up the sky. And what a spectacular sunrise it is going to be. I pray we don't miss it. Please pray with me now. Father God, we are a people too often getting comfortable in a place that you have already called us out of. If not for your unfailing mercy on us, we would be utterly lost. We praise you that you are the God of mercy. We pray that by the stirring of your spirit in us, you will remind us how to value the things that you value and transform us into a community that daily celebrates the overpowering goodness of Jesus in word and in deed, and to reenact his death and resurrection on behalf of others, just as we have received from you. In Jesus' name, amen.